Well, when uh, Joshua wrote to ask me what, uh, how far I'd get in uh, Luke 14, I said, well, I'm going to make a run for verse 24, but I knew even at the time that I wasn't going to get there all the way to the end. So we'll, uh, I'll read all of Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 24, uh, but this morning I'll just be preaching down to verse 11. So Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 24. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited both, you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and he will begin with shame to to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent the servant, sent the servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring the, in the poor, the crippled, the blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still more room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Our great and glorious God, as we approach this passage of scripture, we pray that you would reveal to us who you are. You would reveal to us your holiness, your glory, Lord, your righteousness and your justice. 
Lord, I pray that you would also reveal to us our weakness, our sinfulness, and our desperate need of Christ. Lord, that we might be humble before you and that we might be humble before each other. Do this, I pray, in the power of your Holy Spirit for the glory of your name and for the building of your church. Amen. Martin Luther was a gifted teacher. Not only did he teach in the pulpit and the classroom and through his many books, but he continually sought out teachable moments, times in day-to-day life that could be maximized to teach others about God and his glory. When Frederick the Wise, Electoral Prince of Saxony, gifted the former Augustinian monastery of, of Wittenberg to Luther and his wife Katie as a wedding present, that former monastery became the Luther's family home. And in that home, not only did Luther teach his own children, but he would teach students, traveling dignitaries, theologians, and the faculty of the University of Wittenberg around the family table. Mealtimes at the Luther's were always crowded with family and students and faculty and were always rich with the Word of God. Students came, notebook in hand, to hear what Luther would say, and Katie joked that they should charge tuition for these meals because of all Luther that taught around those tables, around that table. This teaching gathered by Luther's students over countless mealtimes formed the basis of Table Talk, a book, a, a collection of Luther's sayings gleaned from conversations around his table. Martin Luther was a gifted teacher, but Jesus Christ was a teacher par excellence, endowed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. He, the eternal Logos of God, was the most gifted teacher to ever walk the face of the earth. And Jesus also taught in a variety of contexts. In the synagogue, in the, by the hillside, by the sea, and quite often over meals. Our passage today has Jesus teaching once again over a meal. But the mood at this meal was nothing like a family dinner among friends. This mood was decidedly hostile. As Jesus reclined at the table of the ruler of the Pharisees. And throughout Luke's gospel account, we've seen consistently the, the animosity that the Pharisees held towards Jesus. It would be like Luther, instead of of answering charges of heresy at the Diet of Worms, sitting down to a meal with with Charles V and Johann van Eck and the assembled dignitaries, most of whom wanted him dead. No doubt there would have been the same rigorous religious instruction, but it wouldn't have been very good for the digestion. Nonetheless, Luther's famous words, empowered no doubt by the Holy Spirit, would still have rung out. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures. I have quoted that my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is either safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. If Martin Luther could see the inconsistencies of the religious authorities in his day, how much more could Jesus see them in his? 
If Luther was bound by the testimony of the scriptures, how much more was Jesus? If Luther's conscience was captive to the word of God, how much more was that of Jesus? And as Jesus went to that Sabbath meal in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, he was going knowingly into the lion's den. They'd invited Jesus to scrutinize him, to entrap him, and to condemn him. But it is the Pharisees themselves who would find themselves under the scrutiny of Jesus. They'll be ensnared by their own trap, and they will find themselves condemned. Jesus was undaunted in his mission. He went to the meal in continuation of his objective, to proclaim the word of God and to minister to others for the glory of God and for the salvation of the elect. The religious leadership, however, it will be revealed, have instead been leading themselves astray. In our passage today, Luke 24, one, rather Luke 14, 1 to 24 is, is often referred to as a feast narrative because it takes place around the table of this ruler of the Pharisees. And Jesus' teaching centers around the concept of a gathering together for a feast. In this passage, there are four key scenes, four movements that impart four key lessons to the Pharisees, and to us. We're going to examine the first two this morning, and Lord willing, the next two next week. So this morning we're going to see verses 1 to 6, a lesson about hypocrisy. And then in verses 7 to 11, a lesson about humility. And again, next week, Lord willing, verses 12 to 14, a lesson about hospitality, and 15 to 24, a lesson about heaven. So first of all, verses 1 to 6, a lesson about hypocrisy. Our passage begins on an ominous tone. First, we're told that it's the Sabbath. Now remember that Jesus has just had a confrontation with the Pharisees over the Sabbath, just in our last chapter, Luke 13, verses 10 to 17, where Jesus had healed a woman with a hunched back on the Sabbath, showing that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So the fact that it's the Sabbath strikes an ominous tone. Second, this meal takes place at the home of a ruler of the Pharisees. This wasn't just a Pharisee, but a ruler of the Pharisees. An important person, probably a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Again and again, we have seen the animosity growing towards Jesus. Things are reaching the boiling point as Jesus approaches Jerusalem and his crucifixion. Third, it's ominous because we're told that the Pharisees are watching Jesus carefully. Now, the phrase here really means to, to watch lurkingly, like a cat watches a bird. They've been watching Jesus carefully since the beginning of his ministry. Not to learn from Jesus, but to bring a charge against Jesus and to challenge Jesus. So right off the bat, the, the one who is was really the guest of honor, was being completely dishonored. With Christ, there were no sins, no shortcomings, no flaws whatsoever, but that did not stop his enemies from finding them anyway. They might be like cats, but this is no mere sparrow that they're watching. This would be more like cats watching an eagle. So these Pharisees have set a trap. But nonetheless, Jesus accepts the hospitality of his enemy. He knew that this would be an opportunity for ministry. 
Now, there's a lesson here for us. We, we don't cut ourselves off from unbelievers. As we'll see later, we intentionally engage them. Now, I've seen a lot of friendship evangelism. There was a lot more friendship than it was evangelism. When you spend time with, with unbelievers, do you just shoot the breeze with them, or do you seek opportunities to tell them about Jesus Christ? As J.C. Rowell admonishes, we ought to go into their society moderately, watchfully, and prayerfully with a firm resolution to carry our master and our master's business with us. Now, unbelievers are watching you carefully as well. They're, they're waiting. They're, they're hoping for you to trip up so that your failures might justify their faithlessness. But by God's grace, shine the light of Christ. More than one person who has sought to discredit Christianity has been led to faith in Christ by faithful representatives of Christ. If they're going to discredit you, let it be because of the word of God, because you are about God's business. Carrying out God's business was certainly Jesus' resolution at this meal. Suddenly, in, in verse 2, there appears a man in front of Jesus who had dropsy. Now, Dr. Luke is the only one to use this term in all the scriptures. The symptoms of, of dropsy are swollen limbs and tissue resulting from an excess of bodily fluids. Now, technically, dropsy is not a disease, but symptomatic of another medical problem. Quite often, uh, it's a symptom of, of heart failure or kidney disease. Seems to be described in Leviticus 15, where the body is blocked up with discharge. But now the disabling illness is not immediately life-threatening. Dropsy, though, was widely regarded as, in the rabbinical tradition, as being punishment for sin. And the scriptures say that the dropsy would render a person unclean and unfit for temple worship, according to the ceremonial law. The context seems to point to the sick man having been invited to this meal by this ruler of the Pharisees. Now, while it might seem commendable to invite a sick person to a Sabbath meal, it seems that this Pharisee had nefarious purposes. It appears that this Pharisee had invited Jesus in order to entrap Jesus. So he invited this man in order to entrap Jesus. And having come so soon after this last confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees about the Sabbath and the healing of the Sabbath in chapter 13, this reeks of a setup. And so watching eyes at the end of verse 1 lead to behold at the beginning of verse 2. Look, there he is. And the Pharisees are watching the whole thing. It seems, again, that this unhealthy man was invited by the Pharisees, not out of hospitality, let alone out of, out of compassion, but in order to trap Jesus. Jesus. Jesus was invited not out of hospitality, let alone a desire to learn from him, but to condemn him. Now, from the Pharisees' perspective, if, if Jesus heals this man, they can charge him of being with being a Sabbath breaker. Imagine the audacity of calling the Lord of the Sabbath, a Sabbath breaker. And if Jesus doesn't heal the man, they can charge him with a lack of compassion. But either way, set up or not, Jesus is going to heal this man. Jesus is about to turn the tables on the Pharisees and to show that, that it is they who are on trial, not him. It's a radical reversal. 
So Jesus re- responds or, or answered them as, as some English trans- translations more accurately say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, no one had spoken to Jesus. So Jesus is answering the, the actions or the thoughts of the Pharisees. He knew the answer that was in their hearts and their mind, and he knew that, that their answer contradicted his teaching and the real meaning of the Sabbath. As we talked about in Luke 13, 10 to 17, the, the Mishnah, the, the extra biblical rules that the, that the scribes and Pharisees had added to the Word of God, taught that healing could take place on the Sabbath, provided there was immediate danger to life. But the reality is that nothing in the Scriptures prohibit such healing whether it was in Luke 13 or here in Luke 14. The Sabbath, the, the, the Pharisees said nothing. They had no response to Jesus. They tried to entrap Jesus, but they'd actually laid the trap for themselves. If they would say that such healing is permitted, they're calling their interpretation and their practice of the, of the Sabbath law into question. If they say that such healing is not permitted on the Sabbath, then they are the ones lacking compassion and they're the ones who are condemning what is good to do on the Sabbath. So Jesus takes the man and heals him and sends him away. Jesus has turned the table on the Pharisees and he's turned the table for the, for the man with dropsy as well. He would have been excluded from, from temple worship. See, you're placed in a prominent position before the Lord Jesus Christ position, as it were, of honor. And Jesus further honors the man by grasping him, by laying hold of him and healing him. Jesus is doing exactly what he said he was going to do in Luke 13, 32. He said he's going to continue ministering to people. He, he's going to continue casting out demons and, and curing diseases. No matter what Herod, no matter what the Pharisees, no matter what anybody said or did, Jesus is going to keep on doing what Jesus came to do. Jesus is still doing what he said he was going to do right back at the beginning of his ministry in, in Luke 4, 18 and 19. He said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the reciting, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so in silencing the Pharisees, Jesus is showing that he, not they, is the spiritual authority. And that he, not they, has the correct understanding and practice on the Sabbath. But the hearts of the Pharisees, however, remain hard against Jesus and against his teaching. So Jesus doubles down. Now he exposes their inconsistency, their, the hypocrisy of the, of the Pharisees' Sabbath practices. He asks them, which of you, having a son or an ox who has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Now remember, he's just called them hypocrites for their understanding of the Sabbath back in, in doing something very similar in Luke 13, 15, and 16. He, he's called them hypocrites because they had no problem watering an animal on the Sabbath, but they condemned Jesus as wrong as being a Sabbath breaker for helping a woman who had been bound by Satan for 18 years. So now Jesus includes a son in the equation. He's saying that, that they would be willing to help an ox or a son on the Sabbath, but not this man who's suffering with dropsy. 
Now, the Mishnah does make provision for throwing straw into a pit to enable an animal to climb out on the Sabbath. And so it provides justification for pulling specific animals out of a pit on the Sabbath. But with all of these crazy laws, you, you can see how, how the people were put into bondage. If a person or an animal was, was in trouble, you had to pull out the rule book, the man-made rule book, in order to see if, if you could help him. It's ludicrous. The Pharisees had turned Sabbath-keeping into a legalistic burden, far from the day that is set apart for worship and rest that the Lord God had instituted it to be. God instituted the Sabbath for people's good as a blessing. As Jesus explained in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And in verse 28, Jesus identifies himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. Luke includes five healings on the Sabbath. This is, this is telling in a gospel account written for a Gentile from the perspective of a Gentile. The Lord is repeatedly explaining and teaching what the Sabbath means and, and what it is from the perspective from his perspective, from, from God's perspective, Jesus does not cancel it or, or tell us to ignore it. Jesus is proving that the Pharisees were completely wrong, completely ignoring the intention of God's moral law, which is summed up in loving God and loving others. It wasn't just Jesus' words that were rebuked to the Pharisees. This miracle was a rebuke to the Pharisees as well. They were silent before the healing, and they are silent now. Jesus has silenced the Pharisees. Jesus ha has, has reduced them to nothing. They were watching Jesus carefully, but they could only watch him helplessly. They could not do or say anything against him. The tables had been turned. The Pharisees had laid a trap for Jesus, but they had found that they had found themselves ensnared. They tried to condemn Jesus, but they were self-condemned by their hypocrisy over the Sabbath. They dishonored and tried to discredit the Lord Jesus, who should have been held in the highest honor, while these social and religious elites were themselves knocked down several pegs. They were supposed to teach people what God is like, but they had used the sick man as bait in a trap well, he was actually held in a position of honor right in front of Jesus and was healed by Jesus. So that's Jesus' lesson about hypocrisy. And now we see that Jesus teaches the Pharisees and us a lesson about humility. In verses 7 to 11. Having once again established his authority, Jesus now continues to address those around the table. Again, he turns the tables on. We've seen that, that very much of this phase of Jesus' Ministry, as he journeys towards Jerusalem, has been characterized by polemic with the religious leadership. Constantly wrangling with him, and he is constantly silencing them through his teaching and his actions. Well, now Jesus begins to focus more on what it means to follow him. He's overturning here not just the pharisaical religion, but the very social constructs that were enshrined in their culture. The focus on status was contrary to how Jesus called disciples to live. We've seen again and again that, that pride is, is contrary to how Christ lived. And so once again, the Sabbath feast at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees provides the occasion. 
Again, the Pharisees are watching Jesus. But Jesus is watching them as well. He noticed that they chose places of honor around the table. Now, in most cultures, the seats closest to the host were the seats of honor. And human nature wants that seat. Human nature wants the best seat. At Jewish banquets, the, the main piece of, of furniture was a triclinium. It's a, a, a couch that's, that's made for three. And so a number of these triclinia would be, would be arranged around in a, in a U shape around a, a low table. And guests would, would recline a, around the table at these couches. And the place of honor was, was at the head of the table at the base of the U. And the second and the third places were at the right and the left-hand side of the host. And then the other couches being arranged, they would, they would go down the line or down the table to the lowest position. But again, Jesus is turning the tables. Jesus says in verses 8 and 9 that, that when you are invited to a feast, do not assume the place of honor, nor near the, near the head of the table. Now, the reasons that Jesus presents here are pragmatic. He says, if, if you choose a place of honor and a guest more distinguished than you arrives, the, the host will tell you to give up your position. And you'll have to do the walk of shame back down to a lower seat. But as you walk back down the table, you'll, you'll find that the other tables have been filled up and you'll be stuck at the bottom of the table in the lowest seat. So again, the tables have been turned. This happened to me at the Shepherds Conference several years ago. There, there's often a, a mad rush for the seats closest to the platform. And I spied a spot up front right next to John MacArthur. And so I rushed down and quickly grabbed the seat. And then Steve Lawson showed up. And MacArthur said, no, you need to go back several places, young man. I'm just joking. It didn't, it didn't happen like that, but it was actually close to that. I was a rookie at the, at the Shepherds Conference and, and I joined the mad rush for the front. But when I got up towards the front, I saw that there were backpacks and Bibles and, and hymnals laid on the seats. So people had, had staked out their claims on the best seats. And so by the time I got up and realized what was happening, I had to go back. And as I went to go back, I saw that, that the other seats, the other rows behind had been filled up. So I had to do the walk of shame all the way almost to the back of the auditorium. Now, what made me think that I deserved a seat closer to the front than anybody else? In my opinion, those spots up front should be reserved for, for pastors who have come from overseas, particularly those who are coming from the ministry context where they're under poverty and, and under persecution. The reality is that I should have, have chosen the, the lowest position in the back corner of the auditorium. In fact, all of, of the men there should have been rushing humbly for the back corner. I would love to hear one of the pastors at the Shepherds Conference preach on this passage. I know I need to be reminded of my place. In verse 10, Jesus says that when you are invited, you should humbly sit in the lowest place. And that the host may then come and tell you to move up to a higher position. Thus you will be honored in front of the other guests. Now, I've, I've wondered as I thought about this, well, this is, that sounds kind of like pride, doesn't it? Because you, I want to be honored in front of the other guests. So I'm going to sit lower so that I'll be moved up higher. Where the reality is that it's, it's not about 
prominently where you're sitting physically, but where you're seated in your heart. You can be seated in the lowest place, but in your mind, your heart, you can be seated in the highest position. Being honored before others is not the point. Rather, the point is that you should not try to draw attention to what you think your position is. Rather, let the Lord place you in the position that He deems appropriate. Let others recognize that. And then God gets the glory. In Matthew 28, verses 20 to 28, we, you know the story well, that, that James and John send their mama to Jesus to, to ask him if they could sit on his right hand and his left hand when he receives his kingdom. You know the story. You know that the, the other disciples are indignant. They're ticked at James and John. But if they'd have been humble, they would have recognized that they're indignant because they wanted the highest position for themselves. Now the apostles will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 29, 26. And we're going to see that also when we get to Luke 22. But it is God who will grant who sits on the right hand and the left hand when Jesus is enthroned. Friends, God's ways are exactly the opposite of man's ways. God's wisdom is the exact opposite of man's wisdom. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ means recognizing that those who must, who want to be great must be a servant. And those who want to be a la, la, must be first, sorry, well, those who want to be first must be a slave. Again, the issue is one of heart. For Jesus, the point is humility, which God honors. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, Jesus is going to say that again in Luke 18, 14. Everyone who humbles himself, sorry, rather, he who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The proud will be humbled, and the humble will be exalted. And the scriptures are full of this kind of teaching. It, it really boils down to the law of love. As Jesus says in Mark 12, 29-31, the most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. This sums up the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. It all comes down to love for God and love for neighbor. So clothe yourself with humility towards one another, for God opposes the, the proud and gives grace to the humble. First Peter 5, 5 and 6. Who are you thinking about right now? Are you thinking, my wife needs to hear this? Or, or my husband needs to hear this? Or so-and-so needs to hear this? I have to break it to you. That's pride. You need to hear this. The person who needs to hear this most is you. The person who needs to hear this most is me. We all need to hear this. We all have more than enough pride in our own hearts that dealing with it ought to be a full-time job. We have plenty enough pride on our plates without worrying about the pride in others. Friends, humility is, is often referred to as the queen of Christian graces. Humility is a vital ingredient in your sanctification. If you are proud, you are not teachable. If you are proud, you're not open to seeing where you're wrong. You're not open to seeing where you need to repent. 
And to the degree that you're ignorant of the holiness and glory of God, you are proud. To the degree that you are not aware of your sinfulness and weakness, you are proud. But humble people are open, eager for the people that God has placed in their lives to come to them, to offer input, even if it stings. Because faithful are the wounds of a friend. Humble people need, they see their need for the increase of knowledge and obedience. Humble people really consider the perspective and opinion of others on a given issue. Humble people see themselves as the biggest sinners in the room. Even the Apostle Paul could, could rightly and honestly call himself the chief of sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 Humility comes from having a clear biblical knowledge of who God is and a clear biblical knowledge of yourself and your sin. Humility comes from the awareness that you would know none of this apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Are you humble? Do you see others as more important than yourself? Do you consider your needs, your wants, your opinions, your ideas above those of others? Or do you try to, to take the needs and wants and opinions of others into consideration before your own? Are you more aware of your sin or are you more aware of the sin of others? Are you thinking about yourself or are you thinking about your family? Are you thinking about your family or are you thinking instead about the whole church? That's what humility is. It's, it's love. It's counting others as more important than yourself. As we draw to a close, let's turn for a moment to Philippians chapter 2. I trust you know the passage well. Philippians 2, 3-11. Paul exhorts the Philippian church. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, the most exalted being in the universe, humbled himself to the lowest position. Even the holy God taking on human flesh is an infinite condescension. But Jesus humbled himself even lower, taking the form of a lowly servant. And he humbled himself still lower than that, submitting even to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, he is exalted. He's given a name that is above all names. This is why every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you recognize that your sin was vile enough that it, would, that it took nothing less 
than the death of God the Son incarnate for your salvation. This is where humility comes from. Humility comes from realizing that you have nothing to commend yourself before the Holy God, that any righteousness that you have is the righteousness of Christ that is credited to your account. This is where humility comes from. Brothers and sisters, as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, humility is to characterize the disciple of Jesus. Paul's saying here, be of the same mind, have the same love, be of full agreement and one mind, have the mind of Christ. The Pharisees weren't the only proud people. The Pharisees weren't the only hypocrites. Christ died for proud and hypocritical people like you and me. Call out to him. Confess your pride to him. Confess your hypocrisy to him. Ask for his forgiveness and know that he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Next week, Lord willing, we'll continue our study in this scintillating table talk as Jesus turns from telling the guests to humble themselves at the table to telling the host to invite the humble at his ta- to his table. And we'll see that it's only the humble who will sit at the table of Jesus. Let's pray. Holy God, far too often we are not humble. Far too often we are hypocritical. Far too often we compare ourselves with each other as though to exalt ourselves in our own minds. Far too often we fail to to recognize that the only standard of righteousness that matters is your perfect standard of righteousness. And that all of us fall woefully short of that standard and all of us are in desperate need for forgiveness through you, Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you will help us through the power of your Spirit to see your glory. To see how we fall short of that glory. To see your holiness. And to see our lack of holiness. We pray, Lord, that you will forgive us and you will wash us clean. Help us to grow in humility. Help us, Lord, to grow in you, to grow in Christ-likeness. Through the power of your Spirit. For the glory of your name, for the building of your church. Amen.